Let's read our text, and then we'll go back through it line upon line. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll read the first six verses. Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Tony was six foot three and could jump out of the gym. On the basketball court, he was a dual threat. He could deliver pinpoint passes, and then he could also create his own shot. Tony could dish the rock or he could take it to the rack. The year Tony played for the Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain basketball team, we won the church league championship that year. Did my heart good to beat up on all those Southern Baptists. But when our church moved to our new location, I sort of lost touch with Tony. And I was so excited one Sunday when the, one of the ushers, he ran back to me in the back and he said, Pastor Sandy, Tony's here and he'd like to see you. I was so anxious to see our star basketball player, but nothing could prepare me for our reunion. For my friend Tony now occupied a wheelchair. The guy who could jump out of the gym was now paraplegic. A serious automobile accident had damaged his spinal cord. Now, if I had asked Tony to tell me all, all of his ailments, he could have given me a long list. Pain, brittle bones, skin sores, muscle spasms, bladder infections, respiratory woes, blood clots. Those were just a few of his problems. But understand, they were just symptoms. For the moment I saw Tony, I knew the exact diagnosis of his problem. The message center, the nerves running along his spinal column had been severed. Tony's body was no longer communicating properly with his head. And I bring up Tony to illustrate what has happened in the body of Christ today. Read about the church in the book of Acts. And man, it could jump out of the gym. It had spring. It was powerful. The church was all about dishing out and sharing the rock, winning victories for Jesus. But look at us today. Something has happened. Visit the Christian bookstore, the blogosphere, and you'll find all kinds of explanations for what's wrong. Today, the church is under a microscope. We've been dissected and analyzed Oh, we're either too old-fashioned or we've compromised with modern culture. We're too big to be personal or we're not big enough to meet a wide array of needs. We're too formal on the one hand or too superficial on the other. Either we're not reaching out or we're neglecting our own fellowship. I mean, our diagnosis is all over the map. A million cures get prescribed. One thing is certain, the church's many ailments make for a long, long list. But here's why I mentioned Tony. He too had a long list of symptoms. But they were just symptoms. One look at Tony and I immediately knew his real problem. His body no longer took orders from its head. 
And you see, this is the real problem with today's church. The body of Christ is no longer functioning in sync with the head of the church. Our connection with our Lord has been damaged. Every other malady is a symptom. Most of today's church reformers are dealing with incidentals rather than the core problem. They're soothing sores or massaging spasms or treating infections. But they're ignoring the cause behind all of our ailments. The body is out of touch with its head. The city of Atlanta is home to a marvelous institution. Shepherd's Spinal Clinic is world-renowned for its work rehabilitating fake victims of spinal cord injuries. The love and the caring people that work there are heroic in their efforts. And they keep their eye on the ball. They're all about spinal cords. In fact, they treated Tony after his injury. And when I open my Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, I want to say, welcome to the shepherd's spinal clinic. For that's what chapter 4 is all about. You see, the good shepherd doesn't just treat symptoms. Jesus realizes that churches get paralyzed and become dysfunctional for one reason. They get disconnected from their head. You see, the crux of Ephesians 4 is in verse 15. You can look a little further down in the chapter. There Paul encourages us to grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. You see, the body grows by strengthening its connection to its head, by staying in step with the chief shepherd. And that's what Ephesians 4 is all about. Now realize, chapter 4 marks a transition in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. As we move from chapter 3 into chapter 4, we go from doctrine to now duty. From wealth to now walk. From riches to responsibilities. From spirituality to practicality. From life in Christ to now life in the church. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 seats us in Christ in heavenly places. Chapters 4 through 6 shows us how to live in earthly spaces. The first three chapters are all about how we see ourselves. The last three chapters are about how we live our lives. I like to title these first three chapters of Ephesians, Membership Has Its Privileges. And indeed it does. In chapter 1, verse 3, Paul said that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And then he tries to list them all. That's what those first three chapters are about. Who we are and what we have in Christ. Hey, when it comes to our riches in Christ, Paul is like a kid in a candy store, taste testing all of his blessings. In Christ, we have been selected and perfected. We've been purchased and pardoned. Adopted and accepted, bound together and made to abound, saved and sealed, found by grace and abounding in love, brought back and made near. We have access to God in a process of growth. We've gone from law-breaking to law-keeping no more. We've gone from vagabonds to the family of God. As I said, membership has its privileges. But with those privileges come responsibilities. And this is the theme of the last half of the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3 focus on our connection with Christ. 
Now in chapter 4, the emphasis shifts to our interactions with each other. You see, the body of Christ needs to walk in harmony and in purity, in love and in light. We walk at home and we walk this walk at work. We even war against the devil. And these first six verses are key. They're like an MRI. They map out the body's spinal column, the attitude and the traits that enable the head to coordinate the body. Paul begins in verse 1. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. Notice again, Paul belongs to Jesus. He could have said he was the prisoner of Rome or the prisoner of Caesar or the prisoner of the Jews. But no, he is the prisoner of the Lord. You should know that Christians are never a victim of circumstance. God is sovereign. Nothing is able to get to me that doesn't first pass through him. If you belong to Jesus, God has a plan for your life. Don't interpret the potholes and the detours as a derailment of that plan. Wherever you're at, no matter the situation, he has a purpose for you. Paul considered himself a prisoner of the Lord. Imagine Paul in prison. Chains now dangle from the wrist as he writes of his freedom in Christ. He's outfitted in prison stripes as he pins about the righteousness that he wears. A string of Roman numerals are stitched across his shirt while he records the innumerable blessings that he has in Christ. See, here's the point. Rather than see himself in prison, Paul deliberately chooses to see himself in Christ. And this, my friend, is the choice that you make every single day. Do you focus on your physical surroundings or do you keep your eyes on your spiritual blessings? In your heart, where do you abide? Are you in pain this morning or are you in Christ? Are you in bondage to sin or are you in Christ? Are you in hock to the pawn shop or are you in Christ? Are you in the hot seat on the job or are you in Christ? Are you in fear in Christ. If you're in Christ, don't be surprised if at times you end up in trouble. Followers of Jesus are promised blessings in Christ, but also tribulation in this world. I've heard it put this way. Jesus promised three things to his disciples. First, they would be ridiculously happy. Second, they would be completely fearless. And third, they'd be in constant trouble. Yet even in trouble, our lives are hid in Christ. And we can return again and again to the secret place to retrieve the hope and love and help that we need. Now, I've actually been to the tiny little cave that Paul occupied there in the heart of Rome. The Maritime Prison is a small subterranean holding cell that was been carved out of the stone. And I can envision Paul pacing back and forth. He's worried. Not about his plight or his predicament. It's not where Paul walks that concerns him, but how he walks. He tells the Ephesians, I beseech you, I beg you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. You see, Paul belonged to Jesus, and he was called to live like it. He walked, he carried himself in a deliberate fashion. Understand, we've done nothing to deserve God's favor and blessing. It's all a result of his grace. But now that we've received it, we need to walk in a worthy manner. As a young princess growing up in Buckingham Palace, little Victoria 
was sheltered from the fact that she would one day become the next queen of England. Her handlers didn't want to spoil her, so they kept it a secret. But one day, she saw the genealogy of the royal family, and she noticed that she was next in line to the throne. Initially, Victoria wept. Then after gaining her composure, a seriousness came over her, and she looked up at her tutor, and she said simply, then I must be good. And this is the reaction that Paul hopes hits us. In Christ, you have a high calling. Mr. President or Prime Minister or Premier pales in comparison to Christian, child of God. In light of our calling, we too must be good. Paul tells us to walk worthy. The Greek word carries the idea of equal weight. Think of a scale. Two sides proportionate to each other. In other words, our calling and our character, they need to sync up. The daily life that I live should be a reflection of these eternal blessings I've received. The two should go hand in hand. And what is the type of character our calling requires? Well, Paul bestows on us our marching orders. Verse 2, we're to walk with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering Bearing with one another in love. Obviously, a high calling demands a lowly walk. Now understand the context of our chapter. The church is the body that's growing up into the head, Christ Jesus. We're tied to the head. It's all about Jesus. This means the goal of the Christian is not to just be moral or show off a godly character. It's to show off Jesus. Now that we've received his blessings, let's reflect his glory. We're in Christ. Now let's show Christ. Here's what concerns me. Anytime we try to be moral for morality's sake, you know what happens? We become self-righteous. Seek virtue for virtue's sake, and all you end up is proud. You recall the rich young ruler? The guy had kept all the rules, but still Jesus knew something was missing. He knew it too. You see, Jesus didn't just die to make us moral. He wants our fellowship. You can keep your nose wiped and your hands clean and still not be connected to the head, Christ Jesus. Sadly, this is the trap that snatches a lot of Christians. They make lowliness their goal, and they become proud of their humility. You see, real humility is an elusive trait. The moment you think you're humble, guess what? You're not. When gentleness is the objective, you turn to jelly. When tolerance is sought, for tolerance's sake, it ends up spineless. Gentleness and tolerance aren't traits to strive for. They're ways to share the love of Jesus. You see, here's why we walk lowly. Because people get down. And you can't lift them up or ease their load until you get underneath the burden with them. Why be gentle? Because people are fragile. Why be long-suffering and patient toward one another? Because people take time. Lots of time. And why bear with one another? Because not everybody's just like me. And aren't you glad of that? Hey, when I seek to be lowly, gentle, patient, tolerant, I'm not showcasing an exemplary Christian character. I'm not pinning a badge on my lapel that I can be, walk around wearing proudly and pompously. I'm just being like Jesus. 
I'm just loving others. And as the body of Christ, I want to reflect the head, Christ Jesus, and be a demonstration of his love. You see, Jesus walked in all lowliness. Think about that. The feet that kissed the halls of heaven kicked up earthly dust. God put on our sandals. He got down on our level. Like a dead kneeling to ask his injured child, son, where does it hurt? You see, the body of Christ works in harmony with its head when we too walk lowly. I hope you're not a condescending Christian. Good at shaming folks and stirring up guilt. Do you point out inconsistencies in others in order to make yourself look good? Sometimes. My wife is a great cook. I've taught her to cook southern over the years. She feeds me very well. And her specialty is humble pie. She loves to serve me humble pie. Recently she asked me, she said... Why do you always feel like you need to prove that you're right? Well, immediately I recoil. That's, that can't be. That's not me. But then I turn that over a time or two, and guess what? The shoe fit. It's so easy for haughtiness to replace lowliness. Realize proud Christians do great damage to the body of Christ. When a Christian assumes it's his or her job to point out everyone else's flaws without ever acknowledging their own, it crushes a vertebrae. Some of the body's feeling and sensitivity gets lost. We no longer can jump. There's no longer a spring. A paralysis sets in. Pride does that. There's now a disconnect with the head. And it all started because we stopped walking in lowliness and in humility. You know, when I played football, our coaches had a saying, Low man wins. The player who got under the other man's pads had the leverage. Even if he was smaller, if he hit lower, he could move his opponent. And this is what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Low man wins. You don't help folks who are down from the top of a soapbox. You either intimidate or you infuriate from there. You have to approach them in lowliness. As Paul told the Galatians, Considering yourself, lest you be tempted. That's walking lowly in humility. Paul also tells us to walk in gentleness. And why? Because people are fragile. People are breakable. The human psyche is very impressionable. It dents very easily. And it doesn't matter who's handling them. Who handles them roughly? Whether it's the boss at work or the spouse at home or the leader at church. People will fracture if you're not careful. You recall Peter in the garden? He thought, how dare that guy frisk Jesus? So he grabbed his sword and he tried to part his hair right down the middle. At the last second, the servant of the high priest, he moved and Peter clipped off his ear. Notice the last miracle our Lord performed before his crucifixion was to heal the wound inflicted by one of his own disciples. And sadly, that is a miracle that he's had to repeat over and over since. When will we stop our sword slinging? We need to be gentle with one another. And understand why gentleness is so vital. Gentleness promotes growth. Harsh environments and abrupt behavior are not conducive to saplings taking root. 
A living thing about to bud needs to be treated carefully and cautiously. Kathy enjoys plants. My son Nick loves his mom. And so one year for her birthday, Nick gave Kath a tiny tree for our front yard. Sadly, I wasn't privy to my wife's sentimental attachment to that tree until it was too late. She planted it right in my mowing pattern. I still hadn't quite figured out why. And I saw it. But the sun was hot and it was humid and I had work to do. It just didn't register with me as to what it really was. I mean, my yard is full of trees anyway. Why do I need one more? And so you guessed it. I ran my lawnmower right over her tree. Just crushed it, smashed it, bulldozed it to the ground. If I'd lived in the state of Oregon, the tree huggers would have thrown me in jail. And it would have been a light sentence compared to what I got from Judge Kathy, trust me. But how many church members commit the same crime? A younger believer trying to sink his roots gets in your way. It's hot, man. The pressure's on. You've got a job to do. You're not thinking it through. And you run him over. You treat him harshly. You're curt. She gets hurt. You see, fragile people need gentleness, not pushiness. Church leaders especially should always remember the end never justifies the means. It's not what we do for God that matters. It's how we do what we do. Don't run over someone else just to get the job done and think you've served the Lord. When that happens, a numbness occurs in the body. We've lost touch with our head. And unless corrected, a paralysis will follow. We also need to be long-suffering. Believers in Jesus, they need lots and lots of patience. And why? Because people take time. Hey, Christian discipleship takes lots and lots of time. A couple of years ago now, I baptized the lady who said she'd been coming to Calvary Chapel for 15 years. A decade and a half. I was tempted to ask her, what took you so long? But for 15 years, she'd been coming, learning her Bible, growing in her faith, falling more in love with Jesus. And I'm so glad now that someone didn't come up and press her and say, hey, if you've not been baptized, you can't possibly be pleasing to God. The gal knew the importance of baptism, but she was shown grace. And rather than be forced into a mold, she was given room to grow at her own pace. And in time, not my time maybe or your time, but in her time, she made the right decision. But it took patience. I hope you know that Christians are not jihadists. In Christianity, conformity isn't obtained at the edge of a sword, even a sharp insistence or a strong rebuke. Don't mistake discipleship for canned compliance. Christianity is voluntary. We love, we invite, we shine. Maybe we even persuade, but we don't force folks to respond. God loves a cheerful giver. You see, our Lord wants to be wanted. And sometimes it takes time for people to reach the right decision. Often, they make the right decision only after they've made the wrong decision multiple times. You see, that's why it's wrong for us to wash our hands of somebody, to write somebody off. There are folks our church had to discipline that I still hope come back one day. 
We walk worthy of Jesus when we show patience toward one another. I'll never forget a comment that I heard from an older, wiser Calvary Chapel pastor on that particular occasion. My friend Lewis Neely, he was talking about prodigal sons and daughters. And Lewis said, the denomination I was a part of had its prodigals. So does Calvary Chapel. But in Calvary Chapel, they come back because the kids know they'll find grace. And a big part of grace is patience. Love hopes and waits. And I've been a pastor now for 33 years, and there's one truth I've learned. It ain't over till it's over. Yogi Berra was a prophet. The hound of heaven is tireless. He is relentless. He will chase you down even if it takes some time. That's why the rest of us need to have patience. And a lack of it will paralyze the body. And then Paul even talks about tolerance. As he puts it, bearing with one another in love. This doesn't mean tolerating a moral impurity or doctrinal heresy. It just means putting up with another person's humanness. I mean, we've all got our peculiarities, don't we? Our quirks, our idiosyncrasies. I'll never forget one night, my wife and I had accepted a dinner invitation from a couple new to our church. And afterwards, we were together in the car. We were driving home, and I made the comment. I said, my, those were some really strange people. Kathy shook her head, and she said, oh, yeah, they really were. But then a few minutes later, Kathy started laughing. I said, what's funny? She says, well, I just had the thought. I'll bet they're sitting around the table right now saying, my, those Adamses are really strange people. Hey, if the truth be known, we're all a little weird, are we not? Oh, it's easy to love the lovable, but Jesus loves the hard to love. He's not embarrassed by our awkwardness or ashamed of our sleazy past. He's quick to call us his child. Jesus bears with us even on our grisly days. And a church body connected to its head shows that same tolerance. We'll show patience to one another. We'll be slow to criticize. We'll assume the best in each other. We'll get the log out of our own eye before we go to work getting the splinter out of our brother's eye. Paul writes in verse 3, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Another way the body stays connected to its head is through unity. And spiritual unity is never man-made. It's not something we can produce. Harmony in a church is always a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, here at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, we enjoy amazing diversity. Young, old, rich, poor, urban country, transplants, natives, grits, granola, Anglos, African, Hispanic, Republican, Democrat, Yellow Jackets, Bulldogs, even rednecks and rappers. We got them all. (laughs) I don't know of another place where you could gather together a crowd like ours and a fight not break out. No church can manufacture this type of unity. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. But I'll tell you, a church can mess it up. We can let hurt feelings fester. We can hold on to grudges. We can fail to resolve conflicts. We can be petty with each other and grow proud and become jealous and get bitter. 
If we're not careful, we can disrupt what God creates. Several years ago, the Clemson Tigers lost to our beloved Georgia Bulldogs. 30 to nothing. Oh, for the days. But one play typified Clemson's night. On second and nine near midfield, the center lost his pregame meal just as he snapped the football. He barfed all over the ball. Thus, it slipped through the quarterback's fingers. Georgia recovered and went in for the score. And there are church members guilty of the same. The Holy Spirit creates a sweet harmony among us. But you start upchucking criticism and skepticism and negativity all over the church. And we fumble away our unity. Paul tells us to endeavor, to strive, to work hard at this. To preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You see, God creates a spiritual affinity among us. It's like a living thing. But now it's up to us to water it and feed it and nurture it and weed it. Just make sure you don't kill it. Church life is like married life. You roll up your shirt sleeves, man. It takes a lot of effort. And you don't tuck tail and run at the first sign of conflict. Unity sticks it out. The church is like a family of porcupines huddled together on a cold, cold night. They need each other, but oh, how they can needle each other. You see, when contention arises, it's easier just to go our separate ways. To allow the body of Christ to fracture and splinter. But if the body of Christ is connected to its head, that won't be an option. Instead, we'll work to preserve our unity. We'll realize that we are stronger together than we could be apart. In fact, Paul encourages our unity here in verses 4 through 6. He spotlights seven commonalities that transcend our differences. He writes, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. On a human level, we're all very different, and yet examine the commonalities we have in Christ. The blood of Jesus that cleanses me cleanses you as well. We're blood brothers. We're joint heirs to the same treasure. We're all connected to the same head, our Lord Jesus. We're his body. And that is why Paul points out there is one body. When God looks down from heaven, he doesn't see a league with lots of teams. He only sees one team. He sees the one true church made up of believers from a variety of congregations and denominations and affiliations. Let you in on a secret. We're not the only ones. But I do love how God keeps us spread out. You know, if all Christianity bunched up under one banner, it'd be fairly easy for Satan to defeat us. We'd make an easy target. That's why God runs the spread offense. You know, spread offense, this is the new wave in football. You split guys out all over the field so opposing teams can't stack up their defenders. Well, God's been running the spread for years. He's got believers in lots of different churches attacking the enemies from all sorts of angles. We're one body. We're each many members in that one body. There's one body and there's one spirit. The same spirit who indwells me 
and moves me and empowers me works in you. We share the same spiritual DNA. There's one hope of our calling, or literally one heaven. You know, there'll be no avoiding each other when we get to heaven. God's plan for eternity is for us to live forever together. In light of the glory of our Lord Jesus, all the stuff that splinters us now will ultimately get resolved. I love this little poem. God came to me the other night, and heaven's gate swung open wide. With kindly face, an angel welcomed me inside. There, to my astonishment, stood folks I'd known on earth. Some I'd judged and labeled unfit of little worth. Angry words rose to my lips, but never were set free. For every face showed stunned surprise. No one expected me. <laughs> it's only one heaven. We also say yes, sir, to the same boss. There's only one Lord. This is why we rise or we fall not on the opinion of the guy sitting next to you or the person sitting behind you. We rise or fall on the opinion of one person and one person only. My goal isn't to please you, nor should your goal be to please me. We all answer to Jesus. This is why we need to be careful about instructing other people on God's will for their life. Share biblical truth, certainly, but keep your personal preferences to yourself. There's only one Lord, and you're not him. Hey, we may have leaders, but everyone in the church reports directly to Jesus. If he wants to get a tattoo, well, that's between him and God. Don't you give him your opinion. It's scary enough that we're accountable for our own decisions, let alone take responsibility for other people's decisions. There's one faith. One true body of belief. This means that theology isn't arbitrary or ambiguous. It's not up for grabs. Somebody is right and somebody is wrong. But I like what Paul says there in verse 13. He says, till we all come to the unity of the faith. You see, there's one faith, but in order to get there, you don't come to me and I don't come to you. We all come. You see, no one has a perfect doctrine. We all see in a mirror dimly. We all need to be moving toward the truth. There's also one baptism. And man, I love baptisms. I love the Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain baptisms. We warm up the pool and sit on the lawn or hang off the balcony. And then we clap and celebrate and welcome believers to the body of Christ. It's so cool. You know, a baptism provides a unifying sense the person being baptized is following in the footsteps of everyone present. We followed in the footsteps of believers past. The Ephesians were baptized by Paul. Paul was baptized. People were baptized at Pentecost on opening day. Different times, different places, different ponds, different water temperatures, but all one baptism. And last but not least, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in y'all. Every child of God has the same father. Hey, we're brothers of another mother, but there's one dad. And if you're a father yourself, try to see this through God's eyes. How much does it mean to you to see your kids getting along with each other, living in unity? I mean, doesn't it grieve you when their last name and their joint heritage isn't enough to stop their squabbling? 
Hey, we need to stay united if for no other reason than for our Father's sake. Once a visitor to an insane asylum noticed there were only three guards in charge of hundreds of dangerous patients. The visitor asked one of the guards, he says, aren't you afraid that these people will overpower you and escape? The guard replied, no, lunatics never unite. Hey, never forget that just before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed not only for our orthodoxy, but for our unity. That night he prayed for it. The next day he paid for it. And that makes us crazy not to draw strength from one another and come together to do God's will. Nothing pleases God more than to see us side by side united. Well, as the body of Christ, we need to stay connected to our head. And here's how. Remember your calling. Hey, low man wins. Be gentle. People can break. Show patience. People take time. Bear with folks. For everybody, including you, is just a little weird. And don't throw away your unity or throw up on your unity and fumble, fumble it away. Don't let your differences eclipse your commonalities. You see, the worst thing that could happen to our church is for us to suffer a spinal cord injury. To fulfill our mission, the body has to stay intact and grow with the head. We're probably all doing adjustment at the Shepherd's Clinic. <laughs>